All right. Good morning, everyone. This is the Struggles of Jacob. We are live on Facebook and on Zoom. Welcome, everyone, whether you're joining us in the Zoom on Facebook Live or on Drisha Live. Um, it's, it's great to see everyone's face. If you are in Zoom, please accept the promotion of panelists and feel free to turn on your camera. Um, we will be sharing text from Safari on the screen, but you can follow along in your preferred homage. Feel free to ask questions in the chat, whether that is on Facebook or on Zoom. And when Rabbi Silver pauses for questions, I will try and make sure that your question gets read. Um, and if you, and otherwise, Rabbi Silver, good morning. Good morning, thank you very much. We're in the sort of, in the middle of the story of Yaakov. He's actually about to run away from Ravan. He has spoken to his wives and pled his case. They've responded in chapter 31 saying, that our father has mistreated us. He treats us as objects to be bought and sold. And therefore, all of the wealth that God has taken away from our father and given to you is legitimately ours. Therefore, do what God told you to do, which is to return home and fulfill your vow. That's as far as we got last time. And we're up to chapter 31 in verse number 17. It says, Vayakam Yaakov, uh, Yaakov got up, arose, and he uh, put his children, his wives, on the camels. So Yaakov has, uh, drives off his livestock. He drives all his possessions three times in the verse. It mentions the word rechush. We had spoken earlier, and we'll come back to this again, presumably about the idea that Yaakov in the house of Ravon is a fulfillment, as it were, of God's promise to Abraham, covenantal promise, that there'll be three generations of suffering, and they will leave afterwards rechush gadol with a lot of wealth, here Yaakov is leaving the house of Ravan. His objective, it says, to return to his father Yitzchak, which is what Yaakov had spoken of back in chapter 28. Yaakov had said, if, if I return in peace to my father's house, then you will be for me a God. Our interpretation at that time was, you'll be for me as a God. That is to say, I'll establish a special relationship with you. I make my own commitments to build the inclusive structure, the bayit. And that's Yaakov's objective over here. He's acquired all the rechush, and now he's headed back to his father Yitzchak. Now we can pick up our story in verse number 19. The Ravan halach begzoz et sona. Ravan had gone to shear his sheep. But Tignov Rachel et hatrafim asher liavia, and Rachel stole, but Tignov, her father's trafim. Trafim, some kind of idol, sometimes translated household gods. They appear other places throughout the Bible. The word trafim appears elsewhere in the Bible. So let's just stop here a moment on this verse. So Ravan has gone to shear the sheep. Now, what we know about shearing the sheep, um, shearing of the sheep in the Bible, in the book of Breshit and the Bible in general, 
is a time of great rejoicing because essentially it's when you see the the profit from your work. So Gizat Hatzon is a time of festivity. It's a time where it's easy to get lost in the festivities and not pay too much attention to what's going on. Uh, Gizat Hatzon comes up here in chapter 31. It comes up later in Breshit in chapter 38. That's the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Um, after, yeah, after Judah's wife dies, um, we are told that Judah, uh, let's find that verse in chapter 38. Uh, yes, after Judah's wife dies, in verse number 12 of chapter 38, Years later, Batshua, Yehuda's wife, dies. Vayinachem Yehuda, Yehuda's consoled. Vayara goes his eight, so no. Hu v'chira re'ehu ha'duami timnata. He goes with his friend Chira, the Yehuda'umite, to Timna. And Tamar is told. Hinechamich oret timnata goes so no. He's going to Timna to shear the sheep. And that's where she devises her plan to you know, to seduce him on the way to Timna. But Gizat Atzon is a time where you want to forget about your troubles. It's a time of realizing your profits. Comes up in 31, comes up in 38. It comes up very importantly in the book of Shmuel when we are told in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel that Naval, husband of Abigail, Abigail's husband, very wealthy man, uh, David, who's been protecting him, uh, known to unbeknownst to Navo, sends his messengers to collect some donations from Navo at the time of Gizat Hatzon. It's a time when you're reaping all your profits, the big end of year bonus, and David sends his messengers to politely ask Navo to give him all kinds of goods at a time of great... Uh, Beneficence to Naval. Of course, Naval refuses. And the same Gizat Hatzon, uh, I believe, is with Afshalom and Amnon as well. Amnon's making a party. And I believe that also takes place at the time of the shearing of the sheep. So, shearing of the sheep is a time when it's easy to get lost in your rejoicing festivities, etc. And that's the time that Yaakov picks to run away. So Lovren goes to shear the sheep. And now we're told that Rachel, Vatignov Rachel, that Rachel steals her father's trophim, trophim being some kind of idols. And later Lovren refers to them as my gods. Why did you steal my gods? Um, and of course, the question clearly is, and this disturbed many of the commentaries, the medievals, etc. Why would Rachel steal her father's idols? And they were very troubled by the stealing of her father's idols. So Rashi says, well, she stole her father's idols because when she was leaving, she wanted to separate her father from idol worship. That is a problematic explanation for two reasons. First of all, did she steal all his idols? Or she, she stole these idols. What does she think? Who have no other idols? But apart from that, more basic problem is that a thief, a ganav, 
is not about taking something away from the other person so much as taking something from myself. That's the difference between one who does damages, a mazik, and a ganav. A mazik damages your property, doesn't take the property, simply destroys it or damages it. A ganav takes it for himself or herself. That's a ganav. Here what the Torah uses the word So presumably she takes them for herself. Now the question is why? And I'll mention three possibilities. One of which I believe is correct. And the other two I don't think uh, are quite plausible. One is something that circulated in academic circles that Yaakov has taken um, all this had made his wealth from Lavan's flock. And the claim of some academics, scholars of the ancient Near East, was that the possessor of the family gods would have uh, evidence, proof, that, the, that that person who possesses the gods is the legitimate heir of the, uh, of the, of, of, of the, of the, of the parent. I find that very problematic here. It is true that Rachel and Leah have expressed interest and justification in the wealth that Yaakov has garnered. That is true. But the idea of stealing the idols on the way back to a foreign land as somehow evidence, what's gonna happen? Rabban's gonna sue them in, 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 in the land of Canaan? I find it extremely far-fetched. I don't think that carries much weight fact that we have evidence of that in other Near Eastern texts doesn't mean much as far as I'm concerned. Then there's the other possibility. The Ramban says that perhaps she took the trophim. Ramban sees the trophim as a kind of GPS. She thinks that maybe he'll use the trophim to find out where they ran away to. So she takes away the trophim, you know, kind of ways or whatever, some GPS to prevent Lovin from finding them. Well, obviously that didn't seem to work in the story since Lovin finds them quite easily. He has to overtake them because they have a head start. So the best answer, I think, one that I've suggested multiple times, and the reason I say the best answer is, what makes something the best answer? The best answer is it actually, was, it actually fits in the best with the story we've been told. What we've been told about Rachel from the beginning of chapter 30 is that she desires to have a child. First, she tells Yaakov, give me a child, figuring he can some way perhaps manipulate God or perhaps pray. Then she gives Bilhah to Yaakov as kind of surrogate mother. Then she uh, trades off the rights to Yaakov with the mandrakes, the dudaim. And, and now we have the story of the trophim. And we remember that after she does have a child, after the mandrake story, and she has a child, and she named her child Yosef, Joseph, for she said, Yosef Hashem ribein acher, God should give me another child. So we know that Rachel wants another child. Meanwhile, Yaakov, after the birth of Yosef, has said to Lavan, I'm out of here. Mission accomplished. I have my heir. And perhaps you're all out of mandrakes. 
and Bill can only have two children. So Rachel has to figure out another way to get a child. The first time was using the mandrakes. One might say God works through nature as they understood it, God works through the mandrakes. But Rachel does want another child. So the taking of the trophim then, the immediate impulse is to say that she takes the trophim or she thinks these gods, which may in fact be fertility gods, will enable her, enable her to have another child. So it certainly fits in well with what we've read already. But as it turns out, not only does it fit in well with what is to come, but I would make the argument that in case anybody would misunderstand it, the Torah goes out of its way to make it clear that the reason for taking the trafim was she sees that as a way to secure another child, to give birth to another child. The Torah actually more or less tells you that that is the case. And what I'm referring to is we jump ahead later in the story. Yaakov, of course, runs away. Lavan accuses him. And we'll get back to these verses shortly. But Lavan accuses Yaakov in verse number 30. He says, okay, you wanted to go home. You wanted to go home to your father's house. I get that. Why did you steal my gods? Going back to the land of Canaan, to your traditions, why did you steal my gods? That's the question love and advances in verse number 30. And Yaakov responds to him and says, first he answers Lavan's other charge, and then he says to Lavan uh, in verse 32, with whomever the, uh, these gods are found should not live. Amongst our brethren, Robin has brought a whole entourage with him. He says, recognize, okay, you say I stole your, your, your gods. Whoever took it, she curses the one who took it. And then he says, okay, show me the gods. Recognize them, show, show me the evidence. Jacob, the Yaakov, Yaakov didn't know Rachel had stolen them. So what does Lavan do? When Yaakov says, I didn't take them, you want to go search, go search. What does Lavan do? He searches. He goes to all the tents. In verse number 33, first he goes to the tent of Yaakov. Then he goes to Leah's tent. Then he goes to the tents of the two uh, Amahot, Bilah and Zilpah. He can't find them. And now he comes to Rachel's tent. So there's a lot of suspense because we know Torah told us that Rachel has in fact stolen the trophim. She has them with her. She wants these trophim for some reason. But now we're told in verse 34, Rachel had taken the trophim, but to see she had placed them in the, uh, here they translate camel cushion. When they sit on the camel, so there's a kind of saddle or a cushion, and she places them inside this cushion, and she sits on them inside the tent. Not, the camel's not in the tent, but the camel cushion is in the tent. And Rachel was sitting down on the ground, her father's busy searching away, so Lavan's groping and grasping the whole tent, everywhere in the tent, he can't find them. And now we have verse number 
And she said to her father, Please, Father, don't be angry, my Lord. I can't stand up. For the way of women is upon me. So she says, Father, I know you're walking around searching. I want to respect you by standing in your presence, as the Torah says later, stand up before the old person, honor the, honor the, and certainly your own father. So she apologizes. And the reason I can't stand up, she says, is the way of women is upon me. Period of women is upon me. I can't stand up, either I'm feeling weak or it's inappropriate or whatever. She searched. He could not find the trafim. And of course, the question is this verse, verse number 35, the point is this entire conversation is completely and totally gratuitous. The Torah could have said, as it says about the other tents, he couldn't find them. He searched the tent of Rachel and he couldn't find them because she had sequestered them, because she's sitting upon them. Why is there a need for her to explain why she can't stand up? I mean, of course, it's possible that he might say to her, stand up, I want to check where you're sitting on. And maybe she suspects that he might. But it strikes me that had the Torah not mentioned this conversation, we wouldn't ask the question, how come he couldn't find them? She hit them and he can't find them. But of course, what the Torah is doing over here is a perfect example of what we would call irony. Irony means, best example is, I say something to you and you understand it a certain way. But another person who hears this understands it as precisely the opposite. What Lovin is hearing is, Father, I'd like to stand up and honor you, but it can't be a, 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 a menstrual woman. I can't stand up in your presence. That's what Lovin hears. But what does the reader hear? The reader hears something completely different, which is, Father, I'd love to give you back your idols. But here's the problem. Derech nashimli means I'm capable of childbirth. Remember what it said about Sarah. She's incapable of childbirth. But Father, I'm a woman capable of having a child. And since I'm capable of having a child, I need the trophy more than you do. I feel bad for you, Father. I know how much you love those idols. The problem is I need them. And therefore, as it says in the Talmud, Chayecha called me, I got to take care of myself before I can help you out. That's what the reader hears. And of course, the gratu seemingly gratuitous statement is the Torah's way of saying, and my beloved reader, if you wonder why a woman would steal the trafim, I'll tell you why she stole them. Because out of desperation, or fear, she's going to try every which way to have another child that she said straight up upon the first birth, Yosef Hashem Ribbein I want to have another child. Now, of course, you know, the medievals were bothered by the fact that she would steal the trophim for herself. But in point of fact, bothered or not, that seems to be the plain meaning of the text. And I wanted just to mention something I have mentioned in the past about the story of Rachel stealing the, the, uh, the, the, the trophim. It reminds me of another story in the book of Shmuel, famous story, 
And that's the story, famous story, and very important story in the 28th chapter of Sefer Shemuel. That's the story where it was about the medium of Ov, the Baalat Ov, Eshet oh. Baalat Ov. The story over there, chapter 28 begins by telling us that King Saul, well, first of all, that the Philistine armies are coming en masse to fight against Saul. And that's a battle that he will die in actually, together with Jonathan and two other sons. And Israel will be defeated. And the kingship of Saul for all practical purposes will be weakened to the point where it will be eliminated in the future. And Saul's very, very frightened. And chapter 28 tells us, 1 Samuel, well, there is no chapter 28 in 2 Samuel, but chapter 28 says that Saul, Shmuel died, and Saul had banished all the ovot, all the mediums from the land. Saul himself had banished the ov. Ov in the Torah is one of the primary forms of idolatry. Together with molech, ov and yidoni are the most heinous forms of idolatry. King Saul had banished the ovot. Saul was very frightened and wanted to find out what to do. Samuel was dead. And the book of Shavuot says, and God did not appear to Samuel, not in visions, not in dreams, not through prophets, not through the vessels of the, of the temple. Saul is cut off completely from God and Saul is frightened. So what does Saul do? He asked his people, does anybody here know about the ove? Is there an ove? Is there a medium? That's the verse. And they tell him, there is, a, there is such a woman. There's a woman in Eindor. Now, I'm not going to get into this chapter, which is a chapter of enormous significance for many different reasons. One of them being that it actually casts an important light on the book of Shmuel. It is a book quite beloved to me. And one of the reasons it's such a great book is that the writer, whoever it may be, seems to care less about what anybody might think. So the hero, when you read chapter 28, which we're not gonna do now, the hero of the chapter actually is this woman, woman of great compassion who cares for Saul in contrast, I would say, to Samuel, whom she brings up from the dead, was a very angry man, angry and bitter man. And she is a compassionate person who understands that Saul is doomed, but nonetheless wants to care for him. He feeds him, tries to comfort him and care for him and send him on his way. And there's more to it. The point, of course, the significance is when the Torah wants to single out idolatry, the heinous crime of idolatry talks about molech, it talks about the ov. The balat ov in this chapter is the hero. The exemplar of, of fine human conduct is the balat ov. And what that tells us actually is when you read the book of Shmuel, don't worry about how could you say this? It says otherwise elsewhere. It says in the Chumash that the ov is, is wicked, it must be killed. And it says in chapter 28 of Samuel, that may be true in general, but this particular Barat Ov 
is a compassionate human being, and in contrast to Samuel. It's rather remarkable. But here's my point. Why did Saul go to the Ove in the first place? He himself banishes the Ove. Why does he go? Why does this king of Benjamin, king from the tribe of Benjamin, go to the Ove? And the answer in the hands of the book of Samuel is very simple, out of desperation. Because nobody else is helping him. Not God and not the prophets, not Samuel, certainly, who's dead. And not through dreams and not through visions and not through priestly vestments. And therefore, out of desperation, people do all kinds of things. That's the power of the story, actually. And Saul's a tragic figure. We feel sorry for Saul. That's exactly the story of his great-great-grandmother, of Rachel. She's going to try every which way. She's the mandrakes, Billa, prayer, manipulation, and now it's the trophim. And by the way, it's interesting that after she has a child with the man, with, through the mandrakes, it's, it's attributed to God, God working through the mandrakes. Now, it's more difficult to say God is working through the trophim, but for Rachel, perhaps it's, you know, hedging your bets. If the trophim help me, I'll take the trophim. I would prefer that God help me. But any which way I'm determined to have another child, Yosef Hashem Libenacher. That's the situation we have over here. That's, I believe, why Rachel has stolen the trophim. And that also explains something else, of course, which is why Rachel dies in childbirth. She dies in childbirth. Yes, the trophim give you the answer, but not necessarily the way you anticipated. And furthermore, her dying in childbirth in chapter 35 takes us back to the very beginning where Rachel said to Jacob in chapter 30, as we read, give me a child, children. If not, I will die. There's a threat. Give me a child or else I die. Yaakov's answer was, not my problem. What am I, God, to help you? Right? I, God would... God has prevented you from having children. And my wife, Leah, she's got four kids, you know? So whatever. Can't, can't help you, sorry. Or worse, not my problem, perhaps. Depends how you read it. But in any event, the threat was, and Yaakov could have been more sympathetic in the response. At the end of the day, she dies in childbirth. She dies having a child. She went some other path. One, one has to wonder, if you're Yaakov, you wonder, of course, the reader wonders, if Yaakov had acted differently towards Rachel, what might the outcome have been? And that is relevant, I think, to what Yaakov said earlier. Yaakov said to Lavan, well, we'll see, we'll get to that, but Yaakov says to Lavan, Lavan says, why did you steal my gods? And Yaakov says, whoever took them should die. He didn't know Rachel had taken them. And we'll come back to that, I presume, later. But he doesn't say, certainly, whoever took them should die, and you can hold me responsible as head of the clan. He doesn't say that. He says, not my problem. Nothing to do with me. Whoever took it should die. It's not on me. And that is a questionable response from the head of the, of the family. Because presumably, he should be responsible as well as the head of the family. And as we read in last week's Torah reading, when the magical goblet was found in Benjamin's sack, 
a story that plays off the story of Rachel stealing the trophim, the brothers said, whoever took it should die. We also will be slaves. They understand the sense of communal responsibility and they're just brothers. Here you have the patriarch of the family saying, whoever took it should die. What do you want from me? And that's a, I believe, an inappropriate response. And also, it fits in, in general with Yaakov not taking responsibility for, for, for Rachel. That will change after her death. But up to that. So in, in short, the best interpretation, in my opinion, is one that addresses the larger text. From beginning to end, the Rachel story is primarily about having a child. Four or five or six examples of that. And the Torah here, I think, actually tells us pretty much straight out through the gratuitous conversation Rachel has with Lavan. She's saying straight up why, in a wonderful irony. Father, I appreciate that you really miss your wonderful idols. I need them more than you. I'm capable of that. If, 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 if like Sarah, I wouldn't need them. I wouldn't have taken them. But I need them more than you. So I can't stand up. If I stand up, you'll find them. Can't have that happen. I'm still capable of having another child, and she will have another child, Benjamin, Benjamin, and she will die in childbirth. We'll get to that. So let me stop Rabbi you for Silver. a moment Rabbi and Silver. take comments. Yes. Um, the situation. Yes, the situation with uh, with uh, Hannah. I mean, it's always discussed so so much forever and ever. But the idea that almost like Ailey could understand it was a everyone had been in a in decadence and impurity and he wouldn't believe that she was being sincere about you know wanting to have a child so he said he, she's a shikora i mean he also was negating what could have been you know uh a completely pure thoughts that she wanted to have a child and dedicated to hashem uh Ailey's also pushing back against that right but the point is that Ailey doesn't have that kind of responsibility for Hannah. Right. Ailey's concern is he doesn't, I'm not sure he understands or he thinks he's drunk, and, but he, true, he didn't, um, doesn't really understand, doesn't see her. That is true. My point, though, is that in the case of Yaakov and Rachel, it's not just not seeing it, he's, his job is to see it, because that's yeah. his wife, and he, he, we're told that he loves her on top of it. So the question is, love is very nice, but what does that mean, you love her? You have to care for her, you have to, you have to be there in her, in her, in her sorrow. And there's no evidence to this point anyway. It will change later, but at this point, there's no evidence that Yaakov understands that that is his responsibility. So anybody else with a comment or question? Um, yes. Um, Rabbi, um, Sivan. Oh, yes, Sivan. Um, uh, what was so precious about whatever it was that uh, Rahel uh, stolen? Uh, someone as righteous as uh, the matriarchal Rahel should steal something. That is, the question is, what was uh, precious about that object? Why was it so important for Labanols? Because she thinks they'll help her have a child. That's why. She wants another child. She said so explicitly. Yosef Hashem, we may not care. And she believes that these idols, God's <laughs> idols, will assist her in having a child. And she does have a child, in fact. Now, whether it's because of the trophim or, or simply God has granted the child, We'll never know the answer to that. But um, she, by the way, when she prayed, Yosef Hashem she says Hashem, oh God, Hashem should give me another child. So I put it in terms of hedging of bets. You know, it's Hashem should give me the child. 
but any which way. She's very desperate to have a child. And the first child was born after the, after the mandrakes. So she has, you know, she's certainly, and she knows that her husband doesn't seem to be terribly concerned about this. That's her take on it. So she does what people will do when they're desperate. They'll do all kinds of things. They'll run to all kinds of people that are desperately ill and they can't find medicine will often take great risks and take medicines that are, have not been approved, not been tested. That's human nature. Out of desperation, we do many things and often it, it, it harms us. Is it, uh, is it possible, um, a, is it possible that uh, a, this indicates likewise a, an ambivalence on Rachel's part of leaving her father? Or as the Ramban says, could it be that there was some sense she had that, that all 12 children had to be born and the bayit had to be completed before they left to go back? And so on some level, she didn't want to go back. She, she wanted to go back or not leave, perhaps. I, I think your point, I, I, agree. I agree with what you said. I mean, my, I would say that what it demonstrates is a connectedness to her father. It's not just that she steals idols, but she steals her father's idols. <laughs> the point is that I do think that in looking at Rachel and the plain meaning of the text, uh, there seems to be a connection between Rachel and, her, and Lavan which is not true, for example, in the case of Rivka. In the case of Rivka, who leaves very young, there's no sense at all that Rivka is connected to Laban. In fact, it's interesting, I think we noted this, that when the servant meets Rivka, she runs back home with told Vatageru Beit Ima, she told her mother's house. When it comes to Rachel, she runs to her father. And I do think that's an issue, the idea of leaving that on one hand, Rachel goes with Yaakov. I mean, Yaakov has to convince them to go. Rachel goes with Yaakov on the one hand. On the other hand, to leave your place is not simple, and Rachel is part of Robin's house. So I think that the taking of the trophim is a demonstration that on some level, she is connected. She, she, she will die by derech. She will die on the way back, in a sense. And I think that, in a sense, when she dies on the derech, I think the Torah says, and you could read it two ways. You could read that she died before she made it back, or you could read it, she was on the way back when she died. I think that Yaakov, later in the Chumash, will see this, very powerful. He chooses to interpret the second way. He gives it, he has a generous interpretation. She was coming back when she died. And that's Yaakov's take on Rachel. And Yaakov will bring Rachel back into the family. But I think the death of Rachel on Baderech, and she's not buried with him. She's not buried with the other patriarchs and matriarchs. So I think the Chumash leaves open your question as to, you know, how, how, how to view Rachel in light of uh, taking the trophim and dying Baderech. I do think at the end of the day, Yaakov chooses, and we have chosen obviously, to interpret it in a favorable way. But that, I think in terms of this immediate text, um, you know, I'll, I'll put it to you more bluntly in answering Sivan as well. I don't think in reading these chapters, we would necessarily have any evidence to hold up Rachel as an exemplar of, of great religious or ethical behavior. That's not true of Rivka. Rivka's test was about compassion, ethics, compassion. 
In the case of Rachel, there was no test. It's Yaakov that gives Rachel's flock. Yaakov waters her flock. There's no evidence on any level that she's of high ethical character. And by the way, I would add something else to this, which is that even the Medrash, the famous Medrash, which extols Rachel, the Medrash asks the question, how did Jacob not know that it's, that it's, that it's Leah, not, not Rachel? And we, we dealt with that. But the Medrash has the story, which is not in the text, that Yaakov was suspicious of Laban, and he had given Rachel certain signs that it's Rachel, because he thought he might try to switch it, and Rachel tells the sister all of the signs. Now that's a medrash which talks in, 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 the, in defense of Rachel, but let me ask you a question. Is that really an ethical behavior? I mean, someone makes a deal for X, for, for Leah, and you feel sorry for, someone makes a deal for Rachel, and you feel sorry, right? Robin made a deal with Yaakov, but you feel sorry for your sister, so you're gonna, you're gonna trick Yaakov. That may show very wonderful feelings about your sister, but I question whether from an ethical standpoint, that's the right thing to do. After all, Lovin contracted with Yaakov for a certain, a certain woman, and you're switching it on this guy. I don't think there's a way to justify that ethically. So I'm saying even the Medrash, which speaks of Rachel's self-sacrifice, puts it in terms of self-sacrifice, yes, but ethical conduct, no. And I'm, my point being that in these chapters, we don't have any real evidence about Rachel's ethical virtue or anything like that. What we do have in this chapter is Rachel will do virtually anything to have a child. And at the end of the day, and this is picked up by the later prophets, by Yemiyahu, Rachel, Mavaka, Abanera. And it is true that of all the patriarchs and matriarchs, I think it's fair to say there are seven of them. And I think in the, in the, in the Jewish imagination, the one we love the most is actually Rachel. And it's for a very simple reason. It's not clear she's the most ethical and the most righteous or anything like that. It's for a very simple reason. She loves us. Rachel, Rachel loves her children. Rachel will do anything for her children. Rachel will never give up on her children. Rachel will cry for her children. So somebody who expresses that feeling towards me, it's gotta be mutual. Yes, maybe they're not so. So-and-so who's done so much for you, not so virtuous, okay? That's between him and God. But as far as I'm concerned, this person will do anything for me and I'm doing anything for him. That's how human nature works. That's the way we're built, basically. We understand that. So Rachel was so beloved. But is she so Rabbi, ethical and virtuous? No evidence whatsoever here as far as I'm concerned. Yes, somebody Rabbi else? Sil yes, Rabbi Silber, actually, uh, when the temple is destroyed, there is a midrash that says that uh, uh, Rachel was crying uh, and uh, God could not comfort her. And uh, if uh, there was no evidence that uh, she was righteous, isn't this evidence that God himself uh, found uh, Rahel righteous? Right. That, that, that's based on a different, that's not based on the verses over here. That, those are based, that story is based on, that's what Yermio, that's what we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. You have to understand that these characters of the Bible and these stories go through many different stages, many interpretations, many reinterpretations. So we have Torah, Rachel Mavaka Bonera. Of course, Rachel is the one who, unlike anybody else, stands at the border and waits for the children to return. And God is God responds to that. The fact that she won't give up on anybody, the fact that she has a feeling of faith, one might say, or hope. Of course. 
My point is, God is responding to that particular quality, that particular time. And that's how Yirmiyo is presenting Rachel. He presents Rachel as a Jacob figure who refuses to give up. Jacob refuses to give up on Joseph. And our mother Rachel refuses to give up on all her children. Of course. But these, my point is that these characters and these stories undergo many, many different uh, variations, reinterpretations over time. But our purpose here is to read, we're reading chapter 31 of Genesis without the later reinterpretations of the story. This particular story, we encounter Rachel in these stories, we don't see the ethical dimension. We do see the desire to have children and she dies having children, okay? She wants to have children. Um, the way of prophets, Yemiel sees that as a love of her children, you know, and caring for the children, etc. And my point is, we respond to that because, because that's how people do respond. Nothing wrong with that. Someone who cares about me, I care about them. There are other stuff that's not my, my business. My, what did, how do they treat me? How do they behave towards me? I feel a, a reciprocal responsibility. Anybody else um, for a comment? Yes, a Rabbi. Yes. Um, it's Sandra. Yes. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, so ahead. it says that she stole, um, uh, she stole uh, uh, the trafim of love on her of her father. Does that? Yes. Would you say that the implication is is that there are other household trafim that other people have, let's say hanging by their door, but that she went specifically to take um, lavans, maybe either the connection to the father that you were just discussing, or that they because he was a um, a man of magic. Um, or, or believed in that or, or practiced it, that she thought his uh, would have the most potency? I don't know if it's that, or I do think that it, one way or the other, it does suggest to us her connectedness to the house of Lavan. The whole point of the story is, the, the larger point of the story, is that, and I mean, since you made that comment, and since you made a very good comment last week, you said an excellent thing last week. Now I'm going to explain why what you said was so excellent. Okay, it was very good. Yes, thank you. I've been thinking about it all week, actually. And let me make the following observation. The, the story of Yaakov in the house of Laban, we don't really care about Laban, actually. We care about Yaakov because the problem is that we know Yaakov in the past was a manipulator. We know that he uh, manipulated his brother to get a blessing took advantage of his brother's weaknesses. We know that he tricked his blind father to get a blessing. We know all that. And we also know that upon leaving, the Torah says, if, I, if we go back to the verse that we started with, by Yaakov, next verse, verse number 20, the verse we're up to, by Yaakov at Arami. Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. By not telling him that he was running away, he was fleeing. So the first point is, there are many ways the Torah could have said that Jacob leaves the house of Laban. By Yivrach Yaakov would have been sufficient. By Yelach Yaakov, by Yisa Yaakov, by Yetzah Yaakov. There are many verbs. But the Torah has chosen the verb to steal. We have the same expression in English, to, to steal away in the night. Here, Jacob stole the heart by not telling him. So on one hand, by not telling him is the opposite of Rachel. Rachel taking the trophy is a connectedness to Lava and to his culture, to his tradition, to his idols. Yaakov steals by not telling him 
So in a certain sense, that asserts Yaakov's independence from Lavan. On the other hand, the very fact that the Torah uses the verb Vayignov in the context of Lavan, and given Yaakov's background, raises the other question, which is the core question of the story. To what extent has the culture of Lavan, okay? Or to what extent has Yaakov bought into, bought into the culture of Lavan? Remember, he does stay an extra six years to, to make all this, all this wealth. He was gonna leave after 14 years. He says, send me, I, I, I gotta go back home. He, he took a vow. He stays for that reason. And the larger question, the big question, is to what extent there's a lover inside Yaakov that he's got to get rid of. Now he will get rid of it, but that's a difficult process. Now let me make, let me get back to what Sandra said. Uh, I believe it was last week, I think it was last week. Mm -hmm. We talked about the speckled and the spotted animals. Yes. And I noticed something very, very interesting that the, of course, the speckled and the spotted and, and the modeled animals. And the, one of the words the Torah uses is the word tuluim. Uses it six different times, tuluim. And I made the suggestion that tuluim, you know, in, in, in rabbinic Hebrew, tulu'e begadim. Tuluim in, in, in rabbinic Hebrew and in modern Hebrew, I believe too, is a patch. Some translate to him as patched. And a tuwe begadim means a, a garment that's torn that you put a patch over. And it got me to think about the story of King Saul and Amalek. Because in the beginning of that chapter, chapter 15, the book of Shmuel says that when Saul was commanded to destroy Amalek, he let the people know and he counted the people batra'im in a place called tra'im. So Taim is a patch. At the end of the chapter, of course, we all know that Saul did not kill all the Amalekites and didn't kill all the animals. He took the best animals for himself and the people and the other animals he slaughtered. He was supposed to kill them all, all the Amalekite animals. At the end of the chapter, Samuel's walking away and he says, tell Saul, your God has removed you. You're finished. Your kingship has failed. And Saul seems to grab for Samuel and the garment is torn. And Saul says, God has torn away the garment. What Sandra said last week, that was my point. I never noticed that before. I was very pleased. And then Sandra said, you know, something's interesting. That in that chapter, apart from the word tuim, tuim is the business of the better animals and the worse animals. Because in the story of Yaakov, it's not just that he gets many animals. But the Torah said that the stronger and better animals, he gets the better animals. And that's an interesting parallel. Then in the case of Saul, Saul has taken the better animals for himself. But the other animals at God's directive, those he follows God's orders on the weak animals as parallel. So we give love on the weaker ones. You take the better ones for yourself. And over here, Saul takes the better one and the people for themselves. And the weaker ones, God's directive. It's a very interesting point. Now, let me tell you what I think it signifies. It signifies, it reinforces something we have spoken about in the past. Because the story of Yaakov and Lavan, actually, Yaakov's manipulating the flocks and making his wealth from Lavan's flocks, which he does. And we don't feel sorry for Lavan. We don't care, but he gets what he deserves. But we, we're bothered by something else. This manipulation. 
which they, which Robin's children call theft, manipulation, outwitting, outsmarting, shrewdness. What does it say about our beloved Jacob? That's the problem. What does it say about Yaakov? In other words, is Yaakov like lover? Okay, justifiable, but he's lover. And the stealing away, and all of that, and then and, and and Rachel, I'll, I'll buy Rachel for seven years' work, and the people versus commodities. That's the issue in the story. In confronting Lavan, you become Lavan. When Abraham, in the chapter 20, those who study that with me, when Avram talks to Abimelech, why did you say she's my sister? I was afraid, and she really is my sister, and we do this every place. He talks Abimelech's language in that chapter. So in dealing with Abimelech, that's the danger. You become Abimelech. And of course, that's exactly the point of King Saul in the Amalek story. Because in the story of Amalek, it says, and Saul and the people had compassion on the Karim and the Mishnim. They have compassion on the strong animals. They have no compassion for the weak. But who in the world has no compassion for the weak and compassion for the strong? Who's, who's, whose quality is that? If not Amalek, that's exactly Amalek to a T. You take advantage of the weak, take advantage of the vulnerable, the old snake. So Saul in, in the Amalek chapter has become Amalek. He behaves like Amalek. That's the point. And that's the deep parallel to the, to, to the, uh, to the story of Yaakov in the house of Laban. That's where the animals come in. And of course, the text reminds us of this by beginning with Tla'im, with patches. He entered into that chapter patched up. He's already problematic in the previous story. Can't get into that now. And Amalek is the last straw, as it were. But the, the deeper significance can be seen through the parallel of Yaakov and Laban. And that is the core issue of Yaakov and Laban. That's what concerns us, not Laban. The question is the dangers that Laban poses for the Yaakov because there's a love in Yaakov. That's my understanding of the strong animals and the weak animals. Thank you, Sandra, for the comment. You're welcome, Nothing thank to you. Think about. We have other examples of this as well, I can't get into this now, of when you're confronting somebody, you become that person. Three examples come to mind, they're not gonna deal with it now. I've spoken in the past about it. It's a very important point. Okay, let's continue now. We're up to chapter 31. Uh, so verse 20 is by Yov Yaakov at Lev Ravana Arami. I believe Yoki Voreach, who I pointed out that there's two different meanings emerge from the verse. One is that he's breaking away from Ravan. He steals by not telling him. He doesn't confide in him. By not confiding in him, he's, one might say, establishing his own independence from Ravan. That's a good thing. On the other hand, the Torah used the word Vayiknov. The Torah might have said this in a different way. He simply didn't tell him. What's Vayiknov? And in the context of Rachel stealing. So it, yes, the two stealings, there's Rachel stealing the trophy and Yaakov stealing his heart. On one hand, they're very different because Yaakov stealing is not telling him, breaking away. And Rachel's taking her father's trophy means there's a connection. On the other hand, Stealing, and I would say more than that, we're very sensitive to the word stealing in the case of Yaakov, because one could accuse Yaakov of stealing a blessing in the earlier story. Okay, let's continue now. Verse number 22. Okay, 
Now we have verse 22. So Jacob is running away, says he crosses the Nahar, we're not told what Nahar it is, but crossing the Nahar is, crossing in general will be a theme over here. Jacob has to return home to cross over to the other side. So he crossed the first hurdle, he crossed the Nahar. He's facing Mount Gilad, We'll get to Mount Gilad later in the chapter. Meanwhile, Lavan is informed on the third day, Ki Barach Yaakov, Yaakov is fled. And Lavan takes with him his entourage, his family. Vayikachet Echavimo. Echavimo probably doesn't mean his brothers. It means kinsmen, as the translator says. Relatives sometimes are called brothers. Doesn't mean actually a brother. Vayikachet Echavimo, Vayidov Acharav, Derech Shivat Yamin. So he runs, chases after him for seven days. Bayad Beikoto Behar Hagilad. Bayad Beikoto. Can they translate? I have catching him. Why do they translate over it? Catching up with him. Bayad Beik is an interesting word. Because Bayad Beik means the vak means to cleave to something. To cleave to something. It's a word the Torah uses in the beginning of the Torah about the man and the woman, cleave to his wife and they become his one. We remember that when Lovin first meets Yaakov, Yaakov's his poor relative, he's been with him for 30 days, says Lovin, you are in fact my flesh and blood. right? My bone and my, and my, and my flesh. Those were the terms that Adam used about his wife. What Lovin is saying is, me and you have a relationship akin to husband and wife, which turns out to mean, what it actually ends up meaning is, it's not about the daughters. <laughs> Don't think of the, the primary relationship as you and your actual wives. Think of the primary relationship as me and you. I'll figure out exactly how the wives will be parceled out. And here, once again, the Torah chooses the word from that initial story of Ishbi Isha, and that's the word Davak. But here, Vayad Beikoto means he catches up with him, and catches up with him is a menacing word. In point of fact, it's clear that Lovin chases after Yaakov with the intent of harming him. He's going to harm him. However, someone intervenes on Yaakov's behalf, and the Torah says, and God appeared to Lavan the Aramean in a dream at night. Beware of attempting to speak to Yaakov. Literally, it means good or bad, but it could be an example. I think they call it a Hendiades, which means you have two opposite terms and everything is included. It means at all. Says, says, God says to Lavan, don't talk at all. Not good, not bad, not nothing. And this recalls God's promise to Yaakov when he first dreams, his dream. God appeared to Yaakov in the dream and said, I'm going to protect you. I will protect you in chapter 28. Here we have it. Be careful. Don't speak to him. 
This was God's promise. I'm going to protect you, Yaakov. And here it's interesting. In verse number 24, and God appeared to Lavan the Aramean in a dream at night. The Torah is going out of its way. Yes, he's Laban the Aramean, but God nonetheless appears to him, not because God is connected to Lavan the Aramean, but rather because God is protecting Yaakov. And this event of God appearing to Lavan the Aramean in a dream at night recalls a similar verse that we encountered earlier in the book of Greshi. Let me see if I can find that verse. I, I found it. Chapter 20, verse number six. God appeared to him in a dream. Who is the him? The him in chapter 20, verse number six, that God appeared to him in a dream is none other than Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. God is not crazy about Abimelech. God doesn't like Abimelech. I know what kind of a righteous person you are, says God. That's why I warn you not to, not to harm this woman. Don't even touch her. If you return her, this married woman, then the man you took her from is a prophet who'll pray for you and you live. And if not, if you decide not to listen to me and not to return her, I plan to kill you and all those around you. That is not the way God talks to a tzaddik. The point is that God speaks to him for one purpose to ensure the return of Sarah. And the deeper point and very important point in reading the Chumash is, when you read the story of Abimelech and he fooled a lot of people, including the Ramban, I believe. No, Abimelech is no good. And he is loved one's spiritual brother. The two are identical actually, the way they behave. It's always someone else's fault. They're slippery as you can get dishonest to the end. And Avimelech and Lavan are similar. And they're similar in, as I mentioned earlier, in the case of Avimelech, he poses a danger to Avraham in chapter 20. Avraham begins to talk like Avimelech. He has to break away from Avimelech, which he will do. And then the story of Yaakov in the house of Lavan, even more so, the danger that Lavan poses to Yaakov is that there's a Lavan in Yaakov and he has to break away. So in each case, God will do whatever it takes to intervene on their behalf, on behalf of Abraham in chapter 20 and Sarah, and then Yaakov in chapter 20, 31. So God will even speak to these villains in a dream. In a chalom, the Torah emphasizes it's in a dream, not really talking, in a dream. God appeared to them in a dream. It's not the same as Jacob in chapter 28. Jacob dreamt and behold, that's different. God appeared to him in a dream. God takes the initiative. God wants to tell them something. So God proactively appears to them in a dream. The Abimelech love and link is very important. In any event, say nothing to, 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 to Yaakov. And now we continue our story. My goal with next week is the last class of these sessions. I'd like to see if we can finish the chapter next week, hopefully. Verse 25, so Lovan overtook Yaakov. Yaakov tokat bahar, So there are two mountains, each one encamped on two mountains, two different camps. And there's going to be now a conversation 
between Lavan and Yaakov. First, the accusation. What did you do? The term Me'osita, um, I spoke about that earlier in the year in a different uh, class, a confession. That appears throughout the book of Breshit, Me'osita, beginning with the woman. What did you do? And that was an opportunity for the woman to say, you're right, I did the wrong thing. I knew I sh we shouldn't eat from these, this fruit of this tree. I did it nonetheless. I made a mistake in judgment. I'm sorry for it. And I can't think of an excuse. That, was, that would be the right, correct answer. And the same thing with Adam. What did you do? Did you violate the command? The woman you put by my side. Put by my side. But that, of course, that's not what they do. And throughout the book, the word term me'osit comes up over and over. And um, of course, there are different answers, but the one who really answers properly is of course Judah later on, the end of Parshat Miketz. He's the one who really gets it right. But over here, once again, the me'osit. And of course, it is true that God had said to Lavan, be careful, don't speak to Yaakov good or bad. Which, which Lavan will reinterpret to me, and of course, God didn't mean not to speak, God meant not to do, because Lavan does a lot of speaking, right? Lavan himself will say, and your God last night warned me, right? Your God warned me um, not to speak, as he's speaking. <laughs> he's speaking and telling you, let me tell you something, God told me not to speak, right? So it reminds me of, I saw in Israel on the, on the walls, you know, that was scribbled, it's forbidden to put graffiti on the wall. Somebody put it on the wall. It's forbidden to put graffiti on the wall. Um, this is Lavan. It's forbidden. You know what God said last night? I'm not allowed to talk to you. That's what Lavan will say. I love Lavan. He uh, makes it so interesting all the time, you know? What did you do? You stole my heart. And you treated my daughters like captives in war. And of course, we know that's exactly the opposite. Yaakov had actually spoken to his wives in the field and pled his case, and they responded. This is Lovin's perspective. You treated my, my, my daughters like captives of war. Why did you flee in secrecy? And that is interesting, because Nachbeto is a, 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 not a common word in the book of Genesis, but it does appear in the very beginning in the Gan Eden story, Adam and his wife hid before God. So the story, it's recalling for us that first accusation, that first story. We'll see how Yaakov will respond over here. Once again, Ganav, the word to steal. He didn't tell me. I would have given you a send-away party. What a terrible thing, you know? I feel bad about this. I had a whole party planned. I had contacted the party planners. All the balloons were ready to go. That's what he says, right? Had a band, hired a band. You didn't give me the opportunity to kiss them goodbye. I told Scout, you acted foolishly. You made a mistake in judgment. You didn't give me, I feel bad about that. Next verse is striking. 
Yeshua'el yodi lasoti mochemra. I have the ability to harm you. Who knows what kind of harm? Harm. I have the ability to harm you. There's all these people around him, a little army of his. However, but your God warned me last night, be careful. Don't speak to Jacob, good or evil. Of course, he is speaking, but he's interpreted don't speak as don't harm. That's his interpretation. Okay, you decided to go. You desire your father's house. It might even be a play on Kesef, on silver. You desire to, to take the money away to your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? Now, let me say something about love and speech over here, which is, when you read the speech, we recognize we're dealing with a scoundrel. We also recognize that he's pretty much a dishonest person. It's hard to believe that he will send Jacob away with the, you know, with the, with the band and with, with all kinds of, you know, presence and a band and all that, given the fact that Yaakov saw, the reason Yaakov's running away is fearful. God, yes, God instructs him to leave, but also he saw Lovin's face. It wasn't the way it once was. Lovin's not talking, but Yaakov understands and he hears the others talking. He's in danger. And God has told him, now is the time to go. You leave now to fulfill the vow. So on one hand, Lovin is almost comical over here, but, and this is the important but, but there is something about, about the way Yaakov left, which is troubling us. And the Torah does use the word ganav. And he did it in, this, in, in a way which was, maybe it was necessary or not, but Robin is not wrong about that, about the way in which Yaakov has left. Maybe there was no other choice. That's gonna be Yaakov's answer. But I still think it leaves with us the question when you finish the whole story, we're still, something's still troubling us over here about Yaakov. And remember, 20 years ago, he dreamt about angels going up and down the staircase. 20 years later, it's about the uh, speckled and spotted, and spotted animals. So it's atudimo lima ratzon. So here, uh, we have Yaakov's response. And he responds to the two accusations. Why did you steal away? And secondly, why did you steal my gods? Those are the two kinds of stealing, right? So Yaakov's answer is actually very interesting. In verse number 31, So Yaakov said, I was afraid, lest you take your daughters by force. And here in this verse, it's very interesting we have a distinction that the Talmud draws very clearly between a ganav on one hand and a gazlan on the other. What is the difference between a ganav and a gazlan? The Torah later on doesn't actually spell it out, but actually the, this particular narrative does spell it out. The ganav acts in a sneaky way, steals at night, no one's home. The gazlan acts by force. The Gazan doesn't make any attempt to, to hide. The Gazan takes by force. Yaakov's response to Lavan is, which may very well be true. I, I was a Ghana, that's true, because you're a Gazan. I knew that if I stayed, forget about the band and all the other, you know, 
the great send-off you would give me, you might give me a send-off. Or you wouldn't give your daughters a send-off. You would not permit me to take your daughters. And therefore, I had no choice. That's his first answer. And the second answer, and as far as stealing your gods, I didn't steal your gods. But whoever took them, whoever took them should die. Whoever took them should not live. And if you show me the proof, show me and take it. If you can find it, you can take it. If you recognize it, you can take it. And the Torah adds, Yaakov did not know. So this we addressed earlier. And the truth of the matter is that I believe that there's something problematic about what Yaakov's saying uh, because he doesn't take responsibility for that. And I think he is responsible. He doesn't know who took it. And the parallel verse at the end of Parshat Miketz is when the brother said, whoever stole the goblet should die and we also will be slaves. They understand the sense of communal responsibility. Yaakov doesn't seem to understand that, they, that he is responsible, um, even if he didn't do it himself. If the people, if, the, if, if someone in his family did it, he's responsible. Doesn't seem to understand fully the idea of responsibility. And by the way, that's another Saul connection that we spoke about earlier. That's exactly Saul's problem in the Amoric story. He says to Samuel, the people did it. And Samuel says to him, okay, the people did it, but you're the head of the people. Your excuse is even worse because you're the king. I mean, the people did it. It's on your watch. You're the one responsible. Shoal doesn't actually understand what it means to be king in that story. It means take full responsibility. And that's this problem over here with Yaakov. What Yaakov has to learn is how to take full responsibility. He will learn it very well. But in the story at this point, he doesn't seem to fully grasp it. Um, Okay, so uh, let me see now. We have how many? How many? We have. Let's see what time it is now. I have. We have six minutes left. Let me stop here and take comments and questions, and then the next session, I think we'll try to finish the chapter. Rabbi um, Silver, if there can are comments and questions, yes. Can I highlight a few questions from the that, that have come from the chat over time? Yeah. Um, Go right from ahead. from Gil Novetsky, um, God, um, God just told him, Levan, not to talk to Yaakov, and here he promptly talks and does not suffer any consequences. Right. He doesn't suffer any consequences. I mean, the consequences he sent home <laughs> with, uh, without his daughters, without his grandchildren, and he can't retrieve what he wanted to get back, and he can't harm Yaakov. No further consequences. The Torah is not terribly concerned about Levan per se. Lovin interests us in as much as, he, as he's involved with Yaakov. The point of the story, and we'll get to this next week, and it's an ongoing story, Yaakov must separate from Lovin in every which way. He will separate from Lovin, and it, it's a process. It doesn't happen at one point. And it will, we'll see next week, but it really, be, it really comes, I mean, he already separated by leaving and without telling him, that's a separation. And he separated when he manipulated the flock. He has his own wealth. That's a separation. But it goes way beyond that. And we'll see next week, actually. Not the full separation is only when he fully leaves. But next week, there's a very interesting conversation between Lovin and Yaakov, where Yaakov asserts his own separate uh, 
his own his own separateness, his own separate understanding of one's place in the world, his own separate lineage. That's we'll see that all next week. So I would say that yes, there's no there are some consequences, but beyond that, the Torah. Does, I mean, the consequences are he, he Yaakov leaves with most of his wealth, and Yaakov Lovin loses his sons and daughters. And Lovin says, "We'll see us next week." Says, "This is all mine, but what can I do?" That's the consequence. It's all mine. That's how Lovin thinks. But what can I do? He says, "I can't do anything about it." Okay. What else? Um, another. This is, a, I guess, a bit from earlier in the class from Gail Benderheim. Would there be any benefit on either side to Rachel's communicating to her father, not that she has the capacity to have a baby, but that she's not currently pregnant? And I believe that actually what the, I, I, that's true. I think that actually Derech Nashimli means two things. I think that's exactly what, what the menstrual woman is about. She's not pregnant now, but she can become pregnant. I thought, I, I, thank you for that clarification. She's saying two things to Lavan. I'm capable of having a child, but I'm not pregnant yet. Was she pregnant now? She would have another child. Yosef Hashem, we may not have. There would be no need to take the trophim. The need to take the trophim in her mind is, I want another child, she says. Yosef Hashem, we may not have, but I don't yet have it. It's actually an interesting question. At what point she becomes pregnant? She must become, assuming she's telling the truth, which I assume in this context, in this sense, I mean, she gets pregnant later. We know that Binyamin will be born upon returning to the land. We'll get there someday. Exactly how to view Rachel in general, who's on the path, is a question. But yes, it's both. I'm not presently pregnant, but I could be. I could become. Yeah. What else? Yes. Is there any other question? I wanted to say something. Go ahead. Um, I think it's interesting that when uh, Yaakov leaves originally, um, when Rivka commands him to leave, she says, Barach lecha. Yeah, she does, right. She uses that phrase, and now when yes. he's leaving... Right, I, to, I was going to talk about that, right. It's, what do you full, make it? it's full circle. Once again, he has to run for his life. Right. Uh, that it seems that he hasn't yet gotten that out of his system, that just like he had to steal away because he had stolen something, it's the same words. He's accused of stealing here. He's accused of stealing there. And right. both times he has to run away to escape. Yes, right. I was going to talk a bit about that. You're 100% right. That the word Rif, when Rifka speaks to Yaakov, she says, I would say that the, maybe the point is that when you think about Yaakov at this point, you say to yeah. yourself, "What's going to be with him?" Because I want he's he's you know from the from the from the frying pan to the fire because he can't go going home is problematic because Asaph awaits him. Right. And his mother never sent for him. We don't know why she didn't send for him. On the other hand, he can't stay here either. He's both rare from one place. He's rare from the other place. And the question is, how is this going to end up? There's a certain amount of tension in the story. Which the which the brach the double brachs pick up on. I like. We have to see how this is going to play out. He's got to somehow evade. He's got to escape Lavan who's chasing after him. He's got to work it out with Lavan. But then he has Asaph coming. <clears throat> he's got to work it out with Asaph. You know, Lavan being white and Asaph being red. 
He's got a problem with the white. He's got a problem with the red. He's got to work this out. And we'll see next week how we, how we manage, at least we'll begin to see how he manages to, to, to do that. I can take one last comment now. Seems, fair, seems fairly obvious, right, that, that Tarofim is related to Tarof, Tarof Yosef. It may be, although it's a different word. One's a tad yep. and one's a tough. Different Two spelling. different words. Oh, oh, sorry about that. Yeah, but, one's a tad and one's a tough. Let's find that Tarof, Tarof Yosef is with a tad. And that's um, chapter 37. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, that's with a tet. Tarof, Tarof, you say it's with a tet. Trophy is with a It still applies. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. I, I don't know. Um, okay. Wes, Wendy, you want, what is Wendy saying here? I'm here. Yeah. Oh. Let's hear. Here. Yeah, you get the last word, Wendy. I'm all of the listening to all of these things, all of the faults, all of the flaws, all of the deceptions. Uh, I mean, from Abraham, from um, uh, in a mild way, from Isaac, very Isaac, very little, but still there, you know, with his wife, um, and with Yaakov. Why is God? Sticking with this family and in effect with us, because <laughs> they actually work out these problems. Yeah, Avram, Avram separates from Avimelech. Avram is able to understand God's commands at the arcade. He figures out how his family works. It's all about working things out in this book. It's not about. It's the opposite. Is that? It's not that. You know, people are by their very nature have problematic sides. Beginning with the first human being. The story of the first human being is about somebody who doesn't want to confront the truth, who makes excuses, who blames other people. That comes with the territory. That's what people are about. And what people have to learn is, you know, I mean, there are many issues, but one of them is Yaakov has to learn to become Yisrael. Yaakov has to learn how to deal directly. Yaakov has to learn how to, you know, how to overcome his own particular emotions and his, his favorites and all that to build his family. It's a very complicated book and I think that it's very nuanced. Yaakov is in a way the main character of the book. He's Israel and he comes with a host of problems, many of which are not directly created by him. You know, we find ourselves very often in situations we didn't necessarily directly create them. He didn't switch Rachel and Leah. Okay, maybe payback, but he didn't switch them. And part of it is just natural. He loves Rachel. He loves her. That's his wife. He, that's the one he wanted. And he loves her son. And he wants to protect her children. The problem is, he finds himself with a bunch of other children who are also his children. And how do, you, how do you manage that? How do you somehow do the right thing by all of them and overcome your own particular prejudices or loves or whatever? And this is, it's a, I mean, the book is so complex, really. And it doesn't present things, I think, in black and white ever. Not of, the, not of the big people. The big people are very complicated. And basically, I think they come out as heroes. I think Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are heroes in the book, together with Rivka. I think Rachel comes out well. Sarah comes out pretty well, too. I think they come out well because at the end of the day, they are in a good place. And they're able to overcome, and they're able to, and they have a lot of ups and downs and a lot of difficulties. And no one is ever presented as being perfect from the outset. None of them. Uh, and that's not just Yaakov, none of them. And I think that's why this book engages us in such a profound way. 
It's a deeply religious book because it's all about trying to find the best part of ourselves and to uh, to build that side up and figure out a way to deal with our failures and miscues and uh, and uh, errors of judgment. I think that's what makes this book, and will always make this book a gracious. This is our foundational book. I mean, there's nothing like uh, there are other great books, but to me, this is the foundational book. Uh, I'll stop here next week. We will rest of these sessions. We'll try to finish up this Jacob separating from Robert. And then when we resume sometime in the future, we'll have a story of Yaakov meeting Asa from the, you know, from the frying, frying pan to the fire. If anybody has any questions or comments, please um, desober at risha.org. Happy to hear from you. Um, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will, it is, I look forward to seeing you next next week at 10 a.m. for the final session of this. Um, in the meantime, the next class on Indonesia's schedule is Shemitah and the Mishnah with Rav A.V. Walfish tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Have a good day, everyone.